Amen. You may be seated. Good morning. It's good to see you on this very significant day in the history of the church, including our church. Today you've come to a, a day of magnitude that's hard to describe in the history of our church. And you might not have even known that as you woke up and came today. It might just have been another Sunday to you. But we do have knowledge from the scriptures that today is a very, very significant day in history, in real human history and in the real history of Christianity and the church. For today is the day that we call Pentecost. We call it Pentecost because God calls it Pentecost in the book of Acts in chapter 2. This year we have been able together as a congregation to celebrate the church calendar on some very monumental days. Uh, We began last December in celebrating the season of Advent and if you remember we had four Sundays leading up to Christmas morning. And on Christmas morning, we celebrated the coming, the incarnation of Jesus Christ. And we don't know the exact day that that happened on, but it is good for us to celebrate God coming to us in the flesh. And we do that at Christmas. But from then on, we do have actual dates in the calendar, and we derive those dates from the Bible. From then on, we know specific days that Real things happened in the history of the church and Christianity. And so as we progressed through the year, we came to uh, the month of March this year. Sometimes it's in the month of April. And we celebrated the triumphant, triumphal entry of Jesus Christ into Jerusalem on that Palm Sunday. If you remember that Sunday, we preached from the text of Scripture that gave us Jesus' entry on a donkey's colt. And that was a, a day that Jesus entered into Jerusalem and Days later, he was going to die, and a couple of days after that, he was going to rise from the dead. And we were able to celebrate that Sunday from the biblical passages. During that week, if you remember, we celebrated uh, on Thursday night the last supper that Jesus Christ shared with his disciples. We were able to gather in our chapel, and we worshiped around the communion table as we partook in the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. And then that very next night, a true date on the calendar, we celebrated the cross of Jesus Christ where he died as a substitute in our place, the death that we deserve, so that we might be saved and right with God. Then we took a break on Saturday, and on Sunday morning we came here and we celebrated the resurrection of Jesus Christ, where he defeated sin and death forever for those who would believe in him. Well, there's two more dates on the calendar. One that we let slip past us because last Sunday we really needed to tend to mothers and we needed to speak from the scripture from mothers. But on May the 5th, which was Thursday before Mother's Day, that was the day that Jesus Christ ascended to the right hand of God the Father. As you see at the end of, or the beginning of the book of Luke and at, at the end of the Gospels, Jesus ascended where he sits right now in bodily form, making intercession for us as we live life in this world, and is it not a blessing to know that Christ is praying for us in the world that we live in? And today is a day of significance because today is what we call, from the Bible, Pentecost. Now we're going to look at Acts chapter 2, so if you will turn with me in your Bibles to that passage. We're going to look at Acts chapter 2, just the first 11 verses. We could go through the whole chapter. We will look at parts of this chapter And we're going to look at what happened on this monumental day and why it is significant for us today. As you turn there, I want to say this is a very abused passage of Scripture. 
People have taken this passage of Scripture and they have forced it to go places that God did not intend for it to go. And this morning, I am not going to preach against those abuses, abuses of the Scripture. I think the best way to set right what this passage of Scripture is intended by God to mean to us and how it is intended to impact us is to just take the text as God has given it and preach through it. So this is not going to be a rant against people that have abused it. Perhaps we could have some conversations about that in another setting. We're going to take the scriptures that God gave us in the context that he gave them to us in, and that is right after the Gospels, right in the midst of the resurrection of Christ and the ascension of Christ. And we're also going to take it into the context of the whole Bible, and we're going to understand the significance of Pentecost, one of the greatest days God has ever given us. So look with me at Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 1. And let me just read verse 1 to set the table. And I'm going to make some comments about this verse 1 because we need to understand where this Pentecost day comes from. Here's what Luke writes in verse 1 of Acts 2. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. There's a lot of information right there. Let me just unpack a little bit of it for you here this morning. First of all, let's look at the significance of a day. That's the first point in this sermon. I've got four. The significance of a day. Luke says the day of Pentecost has arrived. Now the meaning and the origin of Pentecost is very important for us. And for us to get that, we need to go to our Old Testaments. And so keep your finger in Acts chapter 2. And I want you to go back to the third book in the Bible, that is Leviticus chapter 22. We need to look at the, at the Pentecost event in light of the feasts that God prescribed for his people in the Old Testament in Leviticus. And so in Leviticus chapter 23, we get a capsuled version of all the feasts that God installed into his people Israel. We're not going to work through all of the feasts, but we are going to look at the first three because they build up to this day of Pentecost. So the first feast that God prescribed to his people was the feast of the Passover. It's also called the feast of unleavened bread. And the scriptures tell us that this feast was to be on the 14th day of the month of the first month of Nisan. And they were to on this feast take bread that was unleavened. It did not rise. It was good flat bread because it didn't have yeast in it. Leavening or yeast was symbolic in the Old Testament for sin. And God told his people to make bread without yeast so that it would symbolize sinless bread. We know from the New Testament that we have a Savior named Jesus Christ who is the bread of life. And we know that he was without sin, do we not? Can I hear an amen on that? We know that Jesus Christ was without sin, and this feast of unleavened bread, this feast of the Passover, was to point to the one that was going to be without sin, the bread of life, Jesus Christ. And God prescribed that this feast was to symbolize, he didn't speak it audibly at this time, but this feast symbolized and pointed forward in history to the Passover lamb, Jesus Christ. Listen to what Paul writes, 1 Corinthians 5, 7. He says, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. So the very first feast in the Old Testament, the feast of unleavened bread, pointed to Christ and his sinless sacrifice in our place. 
And that happened on what we call Good Friday. The second feast, if you look in Leviticus chapter 23, is starting in verse 9 there. The second feast is the feast of the first fruits. And it was a feast that was to be the day after the first Sabbath in that first month. And so this feast was a celebration symbolizing the full harvest. And this feast was a picture of Christ's resurrection. The feast of unleavened bread was on the Passover. The feast of the first fruits was on the day after the Sabbath, which was the first day of the week, a Sunday morning. And we know that that is the day that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And so here we have the feast of the first fruits pointing to Christ's resurrection and the harvest of the kingdom of God. Paul again writes, 1 Corinthians 15, 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So the second feast points also to Jesus Christ, this time his resurrection, whereas the first feast pointed to his sacrifice. Well, now we get to the third feast. And here's where we come into this Pentecost concept. The third feast is listed in uh, Leviticus 23, starting in verse 15. This is the feast of harvest, also known as the feast of weeks. The Feast of the Harvest celebrated the arrival of the first gatherings from the wheat harvest. Not the full harvest, but it was the first gleanings that people harvested out of their fields. And an offering was to be made to the Lord at this first gathering. It celebrated, yes, the first gatherings, but it also acknowledged the full harvest is yet to come. And so God told people, the people of Israel, that they were to come after they had gleaned the first fruits from their field and they were to, with two bread loaves made from this harvest, they are to wave an offering to God. And this pictures the coming of the Holy Spirit. And I'm going to show you that here in just a moment. It is a guarantee that there is a full future harvest that is to be had. And Paul links it to this in 2 Corinthians 1.21 when he says, And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. The feast of the first fruits was acknowledging that there was a guarantee that there would be a full harvest once the growing season was done. The guarantee of the Holy Spirit is a promise and an acknowledgement that there will be a full and complete harvest within God's church one day, and that will happen ultimately at the second coming of Jesus Christ. So Pentecost is tied directly to the Feast of Weeks, or the Feast of the Harvest. Now I want you to see here, in the brief manner that in which I've gone through it, I want you to see the precision of God in establishing these feasts and lining them up with Jesus Christ in his death and his resurrection and in lining up the Feast of Weeks with the day of Pentecost. Look at Leviticus 23, 15. God says, You shall count seven full weeks from the day of the Sabbath, from the day that you brought the sheaf of the wave offering. You shall count 50 days to the day after the seventh Sabbath. Then you shall present a grain offering of new grain to the Lord. You shall bring from your dwelling places two loaves of bread to be waved. And it goes on with more instruction. 
Note the language here. You shall count seven full weeks from the day after the Sabbath. From the day that you brought the sheaf of the wave offering, you shall count 50 days to the day after the seventh Sabbath. Jesus was crucified on the sixth day of the week, Friday. The Sabbath was Saturday, the seventh day of the week. Jesus was in the grave on the Sabbath. Nothing happened. And then on the first day of the week, Jesus rose from the dead, and that's the feast of the first fruits. Well, here God instructs his people to count seven Sabbaths from that Sabbath that Jesus laid in the grave. Seven times seven days in a week is 49 days, right? And then he says, you pick 50 days after that seventh Sabbath to the day. So we are 50 days off from the, from the resurrection of Jesus Christ or the feast of the first fruits. And it is on this day that God sends his Holy Spirit to build the church. And so Pentecost means, the, little, the word literally means 50, 50 of something in a sequence. And 50 in the Acts chapter 2 use of the word Pentecost is exactly 50 days after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which ties to the feast of the first fruits. And God has been precise for millennia in establishing the provision of Jesus Christ for which he would build his church upon and the gift of the Holy Spirit through which he would build the true church on. And so today we celebrate the birth of the church of Jesus Christ. And it happened on the day of Pentecost. Now, real quick, as we finish just verse 1, it says, they, it was on Pentecost, they were all together in one place. Who is they? We need to understand who they is. And it's very simple. If you look back up into chapter 1, verse 15, in those days, I'm back in Acts, by the way, now, Acts chapter 1. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers, parentheses, the company of persons was in all about 120. So we've got 120 people that are gathered into one place, and it is the day of Pentecost. And oh, is something about to happen. Something is about to happen, something very, very profound and unique. We'll speak more in a little bit later about these 120 people. The second point I want to make this morning is that we need to see in the passage here, verses 2 through 4, the coming of the Holy Spirit. We're going to actually see in Scripture what happened when God sent God the Holy Spirit. God the Father sent God the Holy Spirit to His people. Is 120. So let's read verse 2 through 4. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Wow, there's a lot going on here. And this is not an everyday occurrence, even in the lives of these Jewish people back 200, 2,000 years ago. There's a key word that I would ask you to circle in your Bible if you're one that believes in marking in your word. And it is the word suddenly in verse 2. Suddenly. 
we see in a word like that that this is a sovereign act of the sovereign God. This is not an event that these people have conjured up. This is not an event that these people made. This is an act of God suddenly, unannounced, out of nowhere. This is not a response to the people's fasting and praying even. Jesus, as we will see, told them to go sit and wait. And in their waiting, God suddenly decided it was time for him to act. And it was suddenly time for him to act in accordance with even the Feast of Weeks or the Feast of the Harvest way back in Leviticus. So we have a sovereign God here who said, now is the moment that I'm going to bless my people with the Holy Spirit and I'm going to establish this entity called the church. I want you to look at the experience of the Holy Spirit on Pentecost. Second point under this, this idea of the coming of the Holy Spirit. It was an audio experience. They heard a rushing wind. Now listen, there was no wind in this room. And, and the terminology that's used here in the text is a hurricane-like wind or a tornadic-like wind. This is a mighty rushing wind. And yet there's no wind. They hear the sound of it. There's a visual element to this as, as well. There are divided tongues as of fire, like fire. There's no fire, but it is like fire and it rested upon these people. It wasn't real fire because they didn't burn. I guess a bush didn't burn in the Old Testament, but this was as of fire. It wasn't literal fire. So God has in audio revealed himself and visually revealed himself in this moment. And this looks like other manifestations in the Bible that we have of God. In the Old Testament, yes, we had a burning bush. In the Old Testament, we had a pillar of fire and a pillar of cloud by day and night. In the New Testament, the Holy Spirit descended on Jesus like a dove. We saw that in Mark chapter 1. Later on in the book of Acts here, we're going to see that the house shakes. And the, there's an earthquake that opens the prison doors for Paul to come out of prison. So the Holy Spirit manifests himself, and God the Holy Spirit manifests himself throughout Scripture in many strange and different ways. And on this occasion, he manifested himself in the sound of wind and in the sight of something that looked like fire, tongues of fire. In this moment, we are to understand that these 120 people are filled with the Holy Spirit. Something that's never happened before in human history. They're filled with the Holy Spirit. Look up in Acts chapter 1 verse 5. Jesus is speaking and he says this. John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So Luke in chapter 2 says they were filled with the Holy Spirit. Jesus says they will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And by the way, the word baptism means immersed. So we are to understand from these scriptures that these 120 people are totally overcome inside and outside by the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God. Totally overcome. And this is where we get the term baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now, let's go to my third point this morning. We need to understand the effect, the purpose, and the power of the Holy Spirit in this passage. The effect, the purpose, 
and the power. Let's read verses 5 through 10. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who speak Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us his own native language? Parthenians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome. They're astonished because these 120 are speaking in many, many languages. So the effect is that the Holy Spirit coming upon these 120 enabled them to speak multiple human languages. Human languages. Yes, the text says tongues. We have verses that say every tongue and every tribe and every nation will worship Jesus Christ one day. Tongue is a word for language. Audible understandable, human, God-given language. Not gibberish. That's all I'm going to say today on that. These people in this text are hearing these 120 speak in all the languages that are listed there in verse 9. Parthians and Medes and all the list, all the way down to Romans, which would have been Greek. They spoke in languages, and they were understood by the peoples of whose tongues the Holy Spirit enabled them to speak. We need to be very careful here. We need to get over real quick the fact that they were speaking in all these languages because that is not the central point of this passage. It was a means by which God did something incredible, something incredibly important. And that's the second thing I want to look at under this third point. The purpose of God endowing these 120 with the ability to speak all these languages is evangelism. It's not to wow people with their linguistic abilities. The purpose here is evangelism. It's the only purpose. Look back up in chapter 1, verse 8. Jesus says... You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. That's happened. And you will be my witnesses. And you will be my witnesses with this power. And this power is the ability to speak multiple languages. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. How were they witnesses to the end of the earth? Well, the end of the earth came to them in Jerusalem and they spoke to them in their language. They were astonished because they understood. And the implication is they went back to the end of the earth with the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is the purpose of the gift of speaking in languages and the driving purpose of this 50th day after the resurrection of Jesus Christ and this 10th day after his ascension 
to endow people with the ability to go spread the gospel of Jesus Christ to the ends of the earth, Jew and Gentile alike. The purpose was accomplished. Verse 11 of chapter 2 says this, the people were astonished. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. There's another important point. God did not gift these people with the ability to speak these languages so that they could impress people with their mental thoughts about whatever they thought about. They were endowed with this gift of languages so that they could speak the mighty works of God. The mighty works of God. One message, God. What are the mighty works of God? What was being told to these many people in these languages? Well, I think if you turn deeper into chapter 2 of Acts, I think we've got in Peter's sermon on this day of Pentecost, the mighty works of God. Look with me in Acts 2, through 24. Peter stands up and preaches that day. Now, now just pause for a moment. Remember Peter. Peter once was a man that denied Jesus Christ three times. Peter was a man that was walking on water, and when he took his eyes off Christ, he was sinking. Peter was a troubled guy that often opened his mouth and stuck his foot in it before he, before he thought things through. Peter, at one point, like I said in the three denials, was a coward. He was a weak, frail coward. But now we have Peter. We get the Peter on the Holy Spirit now. He has been... In, immersed in the Holy Spirit, filled with the Holy Spirit. And on this day, we get the first bold sermon ever out of the mouth of our bold Peter. And here it goes. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. There are the mighty works of God that were proclaimed to these Jewish people who were exiled throughout all of the ends of the earth. We have here, Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan of God. That's a mighty work of God. We have here that Jesus was crucified and killed. That too, even though it was done at the hands of lawless men, was the designed work of God as the feasts pointed to, the feast of the Passover, the unleavened bread. It was a mighty work of God that raised him up on the third day. These are the mighty works and signs and wonders that these 120 were speaking to all these people and that Peter was preaching on the day of Pentecost. And these stories, these histories were used by God to build His church. I want you to note the power of the Holy Spirit. In Acts 1.8, we're back and forth in these two chapters quite a bit. Jesus says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Power. God, the Holy Spirit, is the most powerful force 
ever. It is God the Holy Spirit that was hovering over the deeps in Genesis chapter 1 verse 2. It is God the Holy Spirit that in this passage comes and takes people who are sinful and gets them to profess the magnificent, wonderful stories of God in the history of creation and in the history of Jesus Christ. It's more powerful, the Holy Spirit, He is more powerful than jet propulsion. It's more powerful than nuclear bombs, earthquakes, tornadoes. Those are nothing compared to the power of God, the Holy Spirit. God, the Holy Spirit, takes sinners, enemies of God, and makes them instruments of God. Takes a cowardice Peter and makes him a bold preacher on the day of Pentecost. Takes people who don't know God, and when they hear the magnificent stories of God, they believe in God. That is powerful to take a human being who has sinned against an infinitely holy God and make him sing the praises of God. That is power. And that is what happened on this day in Pentecost. My fourth point. There are two responses that we see in this text in verses 12 and 13. There are two responses to this day. Look at this. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others, mocking, said, they are filled with new wine. you got two responses. This is so true for even you and me in our evangelistic endeavors. There are times where I have shared the gospel and people are astonished. I've never heard this. This is new to me. This resonates with me. Where have I been? And I've had others who have mocked and scorned and even left me because of what they've heard. And what I've shared are the mighty works of God and the wonders and the signs that he has performed throughout all the ages. I know you, I've talked with many of you who have been scoffed at in evangelistic endeavors. And I know many of you who have been amazed when the Holy Spirit immersed someone that you were talking to as a result of speaking the truth. So we see here on this day of Pentecost the reality of the Christian experience. We are, when we are born again, when we become believers in Jesus Christ, we are immersed in the Holy Spirit. We are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. We are to go out and tell of the mighty works of God so that others might join in this thing called the church. And there's one of two responses. I guess there's a third one of indifference. But generally there's one of two responses because I believe indifference is a rejection of what we've said. So some will receive our evangelism. Some will receive our biblical preaching. Some will receive our biblical counsel with amazement. But some will scoff at us. Some will walk away. Some will antagonize us. And some will even slander us for the bold proclamations of the works of God that we utter. And the slander is right here in the text. They said they are filled with new wine. That is a lie. By the way, it's even stupid. New wine is not alcoholic yet. It's the old stuff that does things to you. 
so they slander and say they must be drunk. We will be there. We will speak the truth of God and people will plug their ears and walk away from us saying, I cannot handle that picture of God. We must be certain that we proclaim this God, but we need to be ready when we proclaim this God that people will say, I don't want anything to do with it. You must be drunk. And we must stay the course. Now, there is an immediate result on this day. At the very end of Acts chapter 2, we read this, starting in verse 37. Now, when they heard this, this is Peter's sermon, when Peter said, you crucified him, but God raised him up. When they heard this, they were cut to the heart. That's a work of the Holy Spirit. And said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Right then. Repent and be baptized. And you will receive the gift. Verse 41. So those who received his word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. The power of the Holy Spirit working in conjunction with the magnificent stories of the mighty works of God will do incredible things to incredibly sinful people. So we are to trust God with the results. And Peter faithfully proclaimed the mighty works of God and trusted God with the results. And God that day deemed it appropriate to give 3,000 souls to the building of the church. That was a massive jump in that church's Attendance or membership. I want to make the application this morning. I've made my four points. I want to make some application this morning. This church that we see in the book of Acts that's birthed on the day of Pentecost is tiny, very insignificant, had very, very small beginnings. It was about 120 people. This was the extent of the church on the planet Earth <laughs> on this day. 120 could be named. At one time, the followers of Christ were many more numerous. John chapter 6, if you remember in that passage, Jesus gives them a very hard teaching. He tells the people that are following him, and they're all called disciples, by the way. He tells his disciples, and they're many, Unless you eat of my flesh and drink of my blood, you will not have eternal life. And his disciples are astonished at this. This is cannibalism. And they are perplexed. They say, this is a hard saying. Who can hear it? And the scriptures tell us that that day, many departed. And in that passage, it says, Jesus turned to the Twelve. He said, what about you? Do you want to go as well? Peter. <laughs> Peter says, where would we go? You have the words of eternal life. So the, Jesus has even experienced the bold proclamation of the truth of the mighty works of God. And the mighty works of God that he spoke are 
you're going to have to believe in me, eat my flesh, believe in me, drink my blood, because I'm going to die in your place, and I'm going to shed my blood even though I'm without sin, so that you might have life. And many of his disciples didn't like that, and they plugged their ears, and they left, and they might as well have said he's been drinking new wine. But there was a small huddle of 12 that said, you've got the words of eternal life. We're going nowhere. And those 12 with another number of people to make 120 were huddled together on this day that the Holy Spirit paid a visit. So the church was small. The church was simple. The church was vulnerable. The church was unnoticed. It was unnoticed in Jerusalem. They were in a room big enough to hold 120. It was in a house. We don't even know where that was. And the community of Jerusalem didn't know that there was a huddle of 120 and something magnificent was about to happen until they heard a mighty rushing wind. And next thing you know, 120 is 3,000. So this church came from very small, meager, insignificant beginnings. But this church also came from faithful beginnings. Small as they were, these few were faithful to the commands of Jesus Christ. Acts chapter 1 verse 4. While staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which, he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. In verse 4, he ordered them not to depart. They obeyed him and were in a room in a house waiting. And in that faithful act of waiting on God, they were endowed with the Holy Spirit. There's a picture here for us, a teaching here for us. Because Jesus ordered them not to depart. He held them back before he sent them out. He didn't hold them back and put them in a huddle forever. But he said, you need some equipping. And that equipping is going to come on a day, suddenly, when God the Father says, go to the Holy Spirit. So he held them back before he sent them out so that he could equip them with the gift of the Holy Spirit and they could do incredible things for the kingdom of God and for the church of Jesus Christ. So this is what God expects of us. We are right here. We are the 120. And I think that's true of every church, no matter how, how big or small they are. There is a collection of people that is to be faithfully obeying Jesus Christ. We are to worship Him with the Word. We are to worship Him with prayer. We are to worship Him with singing. We are to worship Him with giving of our first fruits. We are to worship Him by loving others and evangelizing the lost. We are to be obedient in doing the things that we know we are called to do by God. And in that obedience, small, simple, faithful obedience, that is when God does incredibly unthinkable things. And He does it suddenly. He doesn't do it after we've conjured it up. We, we need to be cautious that we don't get tricky. We need to remain biblically faithful to word, prayer, evangelism, loving one another, fellowship. We need to be faithful in those moments 
And we need to wait for the Lord to take that and do mighty things with. So we're faithful with a message of the mighty works of God, and he is faithful to do with it what he will, when he will. As I said earlier, this is the baptism of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2. Up to this point in history, no human being had God indwelling within them. They had God with us, that's Emmanuel, Jesus Christ, but they didn't have God in us. And on the day of Pentecost, God entered into his people. And this is exactly what happens when you and I became Christians. The moment that we professed faith in Jesus Christ, we were baptized in the Holy Spirit. And we were given a great commission to speak the mighty works of God to the people that we are called to be encountering in a day in and day out life situation. This is why the disciples up to this point were so troubled in understanding and embracing who Christ was. We've seen this in the book of Mark. Uh, the, the storm on the sea, they're panic-stricken. They don't understand that they have the maker of that storm laying in the bottom of their boat. They, they don't understand Jesus' healings and many of Jesus' teachings. They don't understand that Jesus three times predicts his death, his burial, and his resurrection. They don't get it because they do not yet have God in them, the Holy Spirit. How important is it for us to have the Holy Spirit? Jesus says this, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, John 16, 7. It is to your advantage that I go away. Boy, that's strange language. Do you want Jesus Christ in your presence day in and day out? Or do you want the Holy Spirit in your heart? Well, our human logic would say, I want Jesus in my presence day in and day out. But Jesus says, it's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper, the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. So this day of Pentecost is paramount in the life of the Christian. Because it is when we get God in us for the first time. And it happens over and over again as you and I have professed faith in Christ. We are having a moment where God immerses us and fills us with his Holy Spirit. And since this day... Every time someone professes faith in Jesus Christ, they are baptized in the Holy Spirit. One last verse from Paul, <clears throat> Ephesians 1.13. He writes, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So Paul says there, the minute we believed what we had heard, and what we had heard were the mighty works of God, including a cross and an empty tomb, when we believed that, Paul says we were in that moment sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. And that promised Holy Spirit is a guarantee of something that we will inherit fully one day way off in the future or tomorrow. We don't know. For you see, there's one more day in the church calendar that we will celebrate. We cannot celebrate it yet because it hasn't happened. But there is another day where suddenly Jesus Christ will appear in his second coming. And he will come and he will judge the quick and the dead, the New King James says, the quick and the dead, the living, the, the, the obedient, the faithful, 
and the non-believers. That day is coming, and that day must be a day that we collectively celebrate. May it not be a day that we dread. And we can only celebrate that day if we believe in this Jesus Christ that God has shared with us and the understanding that we have in the Holy Spirit. So I want you to bow your heads for a moment. And I want to ask you to consider these questions. Have you been baptized in the Holy Spirit? Have you believed in the stories, the the true accounts of what God has done, the mighty works and the wonders and the signs? Most importantly, have you believed that Jesus Christ came and died though he was without sin? And he rose on the third day. If you believe that, Genuinely, you've been baptized in the Holy Spirit. And you are now empowered with the Holy Spirit to go forth and repeat what's happened to you and share the gospel of Jesus Christ so that others would be astonished. You might have some scoff, but others will be astonished and join us in the body of Christ. Yes, there's one last day coming. Are you ready? For the guaranteed day that will be on the calendar. It will be the last day of the calendar on earth. When Jesus Christ comes again. Though we don't celebrate it today. Because it's not happened. It's a day that we can basically celebrate. Because we know for sure it will happen. Are you ready for such a day? If you're not. I invite you to come talk with me. I'd love to tell you, like Peter, the stories of the works of God and pray with you that the Holy Spirit would give you belief and understanding and courage to go and share that truth with a lost world. Father, we thank you for this gift, Pentecost, the Holy Spirit. You did it on one occasion here in a mighty way, and you've repeated this over and over again every time someone professes faith in Jesus Christ. I pray that this morning... There would be one or many here who have not believed until now, but now they do, and they have been baptized in the Holy Spirit. Father, we trust these moments to you. Scripture says suddenly you did it. We wait with anticipation for you to act when you deem suddenly to be right. So we pray this in the strong name of Jesus Christ through the agency of the Holy Spirit that you've gifted us.